Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. Okay, we're in in the book of Hebrews, and uh, Lord willing, we're going to finish chapter six, chapter nine, and verses sixteen through twenty-eight uh, tonight as we go on and. Right in the middle of the time period, it's over now, obviously, but with Yom Kippur ending. Um, I don't remember the exact date now, about 10 days ago. Uh, Sukkot ended last Monday, and Sukkot with the Shemini Yetzirah is an eight-day holiday, and then you have five days between that, Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, and Yom Kippur. So it's been about 14 days, roughly. Uh, So the timing was good, because this chapter, and chapter 10, deals with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the most important uh, of feast days uh, in Israel when the high priest would offer a sacrifice for the entire nation. And last week, we just looked at, or a couple of weeks ago, we just looked at one verse, and I don't have that here with me. So let me, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15, where it said... um, And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And so 15 is really a a pivotal verse, certainly in this chapter, as it talks about uh, the mediator of the New Testament, that being Jesus, that by the means of his death, uh, we would be redeemed. And now, in the rest of this chapter, what he does, the following scriptures, I'm just reading now, uh, our commentary in verses 13 through 15, and really mostly 15, where we are told that the blood of animals under the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was totally inadequate and that the blood of the Messiah is adequate for redemption of all transgressions, even those under the first covenant, and provides eternal life to those who embrace it. And so, when, a couple of weeks ago, when we looked at it, we looked at how people were saved in the uh, Old Testament, and, and because that's what it talks about in verse 15, he's the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament. First Testament, Old Testament, Mosaic Testament, or Mosaic Covenant. So we looked at that uh, a couple of weeks ago. People have always been saved the same way. 
by grace through faith. By grace through faith. It's not of works. By God's grace through faith. We looked at the, at the object of, of salvation, uh, which is God. We looked at the, um, the basis of salvation, the foundation of salvation, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Everybody, whoever has been or will be saved, whether it's the first Adam and Eve, or the last, the last person in the millennium, uh, everybody who ever goes to heaven eventually, it's because Jesus died, buried, and rose again for their sins. So that's the foundation. That's the basis of salvation. Um, the requirement is faith. Uh, the difference that we have in different ages, the Old Testament age, the Mosaic Covenant age, for example, and the age today, is the content of faith. The content of faith. And we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Today, the content of what we are called on to believe is the same as the ground or the foundation the basis of our salvation. And so today, the content of what we are called on to believe is the same as the ground, the basis, the foundation of our salvation, which is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, prior to that, though, uh, they didn't, they, they believed God and what he asked them to believe. Knowing they, had to, they were sinners, knowing that there was a promise and that God would provide a substitute. But it's not that they, you know, you always hear, or have often heard perhaps, well, uh, prior to Jesus, they looked forward to the cross and Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the grave. And now we look back to that thing. And so, uh, and that, that's not actually correct. And we looked at Abraham. Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. And what did he believe? So it was accounted to him for righteousness. And Romans chapter 4 goes into a lot of detail on what Abraham believed. And Abraham did, he believed in the promise, he spoke of the promise, Genesis chapter 12. He looked forward to that promise, but he, he couldn't put it all together. Remember what 1 Peter says about the, the prophets? They, 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 they studied and searched the scriptures trying to understand the you know, the suffering followed by the glory, and, and they just had difficulty putting it all together. Um, but the content of faith prior was different. The content of faith today is the same. And, th and then he goes on in verse 16, through the end of this chapter, where he just um, establishes that Jesus, the Messiah, is totally adequate for the redemption of all transgressions. Um, even those under the first covenant. Whoever embraces that reality, that truth, has eternal life. So he starts out in verse 16, in verse 17, it says this. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. Now, testament, it's translated earlier, Hebrews 8, 8, 9, and 10, for example, is covenant. Same word, same Greek word. And so don't, don't get put off by 
covenant or testament. It's speaking of the same thing. Um, it's the same meaning uh, that it has there. And uh, this is not working. Same meaning, uh, it's the same meaning as, as will. You know, your last will and testament. Same, same type of thing. Now, a will to be in force needs to have the death of the one who made the will, right? Uh, probably most of us, or many of us here anyway, uh, have a will, and that will presently has no force, has no power. Uh, what will kick in the, the, the authority, the power, the force of that will. Your death, yeah. Uh, you know, and you hope it doesn't happen for too long, and, you know, too soon, I should say, but uh, that's what puts it in force. So, and, and that's what verse 16 is saying. For where a testament or a will is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, the one who made the will. For, for, for a will or a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. So there's no power, no force, no authority uh, whatsoever when the writer of that will is alive. Now, when we get to covenants or testaments in, in, the, in the Old Testament, there are usually two parties involved in these. In, in a sense, there are two parties involved in a will today. The one who is writing the will, right? And the, the heir, or the recipient, it could be one, could be two, could be a, a multiplicity of numbers of people. Uh, but only takes one to write that will. Well, in the Old Testament, it was generally was two parties that would enter and, and cut or make a covenant. Genesis 15.8, we're not going to look back at Genesis 15.8, speaks of God cutting a covenant, establishing a covenant with Abraham. Now, that covenant that he cut was that Abrahamic covenant he had promised Abraham, God had promised Abraham back in Genesis 12. Three basic promises, a land, a seed, or a blessing. So in cutting a covenant, what they would do in, in those days is they would take animals, they would cut them in half because every covenant was, or usually was established by the shedding of blood. So they would cut those animals in half and they would line them up parallel, and those two people or parties agreeing to that testament or that covenant would walk through together. And that would signify that it is binding on both parties. Now, when God did that with Abraham, what did God do to Abraham? Genesis 15. Put him to sleep. And then only God walked through, and he did it, um, you know, with a burning fire and a cloud, it was symbolic of him. Only God went through those pieces, signifying that the uh, conditions to be fulfilled to bring that covenant to pass solely resided with God, had nothing to do with Abraham and what would come. And so a covenant is only in force until the covenant maker, the testator, dies. Now, I came across this, I found this interesting. It's from, the, from our daily bread years ago. 
this illustration. A street evangelist in Edinburgh, Scotland, by the name of Robbie Flockhart, often spoke about Jesus as the Savior who died, but all, who also lives. He would illustrate from personal experience the necessity of stressing both of these truths. The prisoner called for Robbie, and in his presence made out his will, leaving him what little money, not he had, he had. But on the day of his scheduled execution, the man was pardoned. Recounting the circumstances, Robbie said, he lived, but I lost my legacy. A testament is not in force while the testator lives. Now, I'm not sure he was hoping he died, get it. but anyway, he went on. Well, another time, a person left him a small legacy, and he did not get it either because some rogue of a lawyer came along and he never saw a penny of it. He used to say, if the man who left the will had been alive, he would have made sure his old friend Robbie got his money. But being dead, he had no power to see his will carried out. And so this rogue lawyer, this Avenatti, I think his name was, but anyway, um, you know, stole, stole all the money from him. So, yeah. He goes on. Jesus, the great testator of the new covenant, did die. There's no question about that. Therefore, the will certified by his precious blood is valid. He has secured eternal redemption for us through his atoning death. But the Savior did not remain in the grave. After three days, he arose, and today he lives to make sure that his will is fully carried out. His life ensures that every blessing promised by the New Testament, the New Covenant, will be given to everyone who trusts the Savior. Thank God, the will is valid, and our priceless inheritance is a guarantee. Uh, is guaranteed. And, and, and in a sense, really, that's what Hebrews is about. That Jesus, yes, died for our sins. He is the sacrifice but it goes much into his priesthood, which we looked at in chapter 5 and chapter 7, especially after the order of Melchizedek. And since he lives, he rose from the grave and lives, he is forever interceding. And we'll look at some verses to make sure the promises of the will that we get it. That there's not some rogue lawyer that comes along and, and steals our inheritance. And that's a blessing. Jesus is doing that for us. Verse 18 and 19. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. Now, the event that he's talking about here recorded in Exodus chapter 24. I put down uh, verses 3 through 8. But the principle was that uh, the First Testament uh, was dedicated with blood on everything. Now, it reads this way. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord said will we do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning. 
and built an altar under the hill and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said will we do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which should the Lord have made with you concerning all these words. So the, the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, was established with the shedding of blood. And, and blood was put on everything, including the book. Now, the book is a scroll, just showing that you have to have a death to establish a covenant. Now, with the Old Covenant, it was not the death of uh, a prophet. It was not the death of uh, the Messiah. It was the death of blood, uh, bulls and goats, and that type of thing. But there was the shedding of blood and established that. And the people recognized it. And Exodus 24, I always like the Deuteronomy 5 passage, which parallels Exodus 24. Because remember all that happened when the law was given by God through angels to Moses? Darkness, remember? Thick cloud. What else? Fire. And then what else? The voice of God. And if you just picture in your mind that scene and, and, and the voice of God was not, um, I, I'm sure, it was, it was kind of like Charlton Heston's voice, I'm sure, but he played Moses, I know. You know just a big, booming you know, voice of God. And all the Israelites that had left Egypt, come uh, across the Red Sea, were there at Mount Sinai and heard that to a person. They told Moses, Moses, you go back and you tell God that we will do everything he tells us. The problem was they didn't have the ability to do it. Exodus 24 is saying the same thing. But here's the establishment of the old covenant. And, the, and again, and we, we've looked at this, the old covenant was never to bring forgiveness of sin. That was not the purpose of it. Um, it was obedience. There was uh, lots of it, it was it was the it was the law of a nation. How how a nation would be ruled by God. It was a relationship that God had with a nation. In this case, the nation of Israel. The new covenant, conversely, and, and by the way, we and I, I we've talked this, but uh, taught, said this oftentimes, never hurts to repeat it. The old. Testament or the Old Covenant is not a book. It's the Mosaic Law. And the New Covenant is not a book. It's the relationship that we have or God has with individuals. The Old Covenant, the relationship that God had with a nation. Now, he wrote down the requirements for the nation in the Mosaic Law on what they should do but it was a relationship God had with the nation. Then look at verse 20. Saying, this is the blood of the testament which God had enjoined unto you. 
Now, all, all, all he's doing up at this point is just establishing there has to be a shed blood. There, there, there has to be the shedding of blood for a covenant to be established. Then in verse 21, Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And again, he speaks of this, in, and now in, in Exodus chapter 29, in verses 12 and 36, and I just pulled out a couple of verses, it says this, And thou shalt take of the blood of the bullock, put it upon the horns of the altar with thy finger, and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. And then verse, uh, um, I guess that's the only, the only verse, I only had verse 12 that I put down there. Um, shedding of blood, shedding of blood. There's got to be shedding of blood. And then this very well-known verse that um, perhaps you've used in evangelism, a lot of people have, verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 9, the back of your page. And almost all things are by the law purged without, with blood. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. What is understood there is remission of sins. There has to be a blood atonement, the shedding of blood. It's not just good works. It's not just doing your thing. There's got to be the shedding of blood. So not everything was cleansed or purified by blood. Some was by water. Leviticus 14, for example, has that. But for the remission of sins, a blood offering was essential. It was required. It was needed. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. You have to have a blood sacrifice. Now, this is in conjunction with a testator, with the maker of a will, and ultimately that will being brought into being or being brought into force. Verse 23 then says this. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. Now, what are the patterns of things in the heavens that he's referring to? Tabernacle. So, the tabernacle is a pattern. It's a picture. It's a blueprint, if you will, of things in heaven. There is a temple in heaven prior to the tabernacle. And when God gave Moses the instruction for the tabernacle, <coughs> and we looked at some of that earlier in chapter 9, and I think I mentioned uh, there, there's more information on the tabernacle in the Bible than almost any other subject. 50 or plus chapters. And the tabernacle on earth was patterned after the tabernacle or the temple in heaven. So, he's saying it was therefore necessary, since, since everything is, is, is um, purged with blood, it was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these. So, the pattern of the, of the heavenly things, the pattern on earth, should be purified with blood. That happened. But the heavenly, thing thems, heavenly things themselves 
with better sacrifices than these. So what was used to purify the tabernacle on earth? A lot of animals. But there has to be a better sacrifice to purify the things in heaven. Now, a lot of people jump off on this verse um, and say, well, and you've probably heard this before, and, and then there's a, and probably I should have put in here, if I can remember, I think it's John chapter uh, 20, 19 or 20. I think it's 20. But, um, well, when Jesus died and shed his blood, because he shed his blood, right? He scooped up all of his blood, and he went to heaven to purify the tabernacle in heaven. Have you ever heard that before? Never heard that? No? 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 Well, I'm not even going to talk about it then. I just opened a can of words I didn't have to open up. Um, let me see in John chapter 19. Um, John chapter 19. Oh, where do I want to pick it up? <clears throat> Verse 12. Yeah, 20, not 19, I'm sorry. John 20. Verse 12. And see two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Now this is Mary. Verse 11, Mary stood without the sepulchral weeping. Uh, verse 13, and they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. So... Mary sees an empty tomb. The angels ask her, you know, why are you weeping? Somebody's stolen the body of my Lord. I don't know where he went. And so she turns around. When she turns around, she sees Jesus. But at this point, <coughs> she doesn't recognize him. Um, so Jesus says unto her, verse 15, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? Who are you looking for, woman? Why are you crying? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou had borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, I'll take him away. Tell me where you put him. I'm looking for Jesus. Where's the body? Jesus said unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabbani, which is to say, Master. Then Jesus says unto her, Touch me not. For I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples what she had seen and so on. It's verse 17. After all of this, Jesus says, touch me not. And, and a lot of people put together the Hebrews 9 passage of purifying the uh, the temple in heaven with Jesus' blood, and Jesus' statement right after his resurrection, don't touch me, Mary. Why, I've, I've, I haven't yet ascended to the Father, so you can't touch me yet because I'm uh, ceremonially clean, as it were, and I've got to take my blood in heaven. And, and there are some that make this a, uh, a fighting doctrine, <laughs> you know. That if you don't believe Jesus took his blood and took it to heaven and purified the temple in heaven, and, in the, and I guess it's in a pot in heaven, 
according to them, you're a heretic. That's not what this is all about. Uh, the temple in heaven is perfect. There's no sin there. Um, and, and what is happening, the, the, the Greek and the word here in, in John chapter 20, uh, not, Mary, stop clinging to me, literally. Stop clinging to me. Grow up, in other words. Now, this is meek and lowly Jesus. You know, he, he wasn't around when women were um, Fabergé. Anyway, you've heard that. But anyway, um, you know, stop clinging to me. You need to become mature and, and learn to walk without me in your presence. I've got to go. But Jesus had earlier said what? When he goes, what is he going to do? Send the comforter. The paraclete, literally. The Holy Spirit. Um, the comforter, paraclete. Literally, para means alongside. I'm going to send someone to walk alongside you, but it's not going to be me. I have to go back to heaven. I'm going to intercede for you in heaven. I've got to ascend. Stop clinging. It's not don't touch me because I've got to take my blood to heaven. It's a complete misunderstanding of what it's saying here. Um, what it's saying in, in Hebrews uh, chapter 9 in, in verse 23, the earthly things, yes, need to be purified. Um, Leviticus 16, 16, he shall make an atonement for the holy place. That's the Yom Kippur chapter. Shall make an atonement for the holy place. But why would you need to purify heavenly things? Well, you don't. Robert Sumner put it this way. In short, the heavenly sanctuary needs no cleansing per se. But those who enter it to worship God must first be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Uh, basically, he was saying, stop clinging to me. I've died for the sins of the world and for you. Uh, I've got to ascend to the Father. Uh, I am going to send the Holy Spirit, who will be your comforter, who will walk alongside you. Um, but I have to ascend to heaven. Not to purify anything, but to be there as our high priest, as our intercessor, as our mediator presently. <clears throat> the cleansing sacrifice that gets you into heaven. Notice, notice the contrast. What's the, again, what's the cleansing sacrifice on earth of the tabernacle? Animals. What's the cleansing sacrifice that gets you into heaven? Jesus. Big difference. That's what we say. It's a contrast here. Then in verse 24 he says this. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. So which holy places, that would be the holy of holies and the holy place, which holy places made with hands is being referenced? The tabernacle. And then after the tabernacle, temple. People made that. But that in heaven... The temple in heaven was not made with hands. Those on earth are figures, pictures, illustration of the things in heaven. So Christ didn't enter into the holy place made with hands, but into heaven itself. Why did he go there? To appear in the presence of God for us. 
That's what he's doing today. See, if we, but we would be um, left in the dark in, in a large way. What does Christ do? Why did he leave? Why did he just set up the kingdom? Well, he went to heaven to intercede for us. <clears throat> he went there to appear in the presence of God for us. Us are the believers. The emphasis of Hebrews <clears throat> is that Christ is our mediator. He appears before God on believers' behalf. Remember, remember the illustration uh, that that man gave. He, 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 had two, um, <clears throat> he had two legacies coming. Uh, one was a prisoner who had left him everything I guess he had. Uh, just the, the night before or whatever he was to die, uh, he got a pardon. And this evangelist says, oh my, there goes my legacy because he's not dying. And then he did get a legacy from somebody who did die, a friend, but this scoundrel of an attorney, of a lawyer, just stole everything before he got anything. And he said, if my friend was still around, he would make sure that I got everything that was promised, that everything was coming to me. And he used those illustrations to illustrate Jesus died for our sins, but he is not dead. He's living. And this is what, the, he's in heaven ministering on our behalf, interceding on our behalf. Look at, look at 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We have to have a mediator. You know, I, if you've done any kind of evangelism and, and talk to people, uh, I know Jewish people will, will say this. Well, I don't need to go through anybody to get to God. I go straight to God. Why do I need to go through anybody? I'm just going to go to the head man, to the top person. Well, <clears throat> that is not knowing the scriptures, number one. But did anybody in the Old Testament... Mosaic law, period, come to God on his own. No, the average Israelite had to go through whom? A priest. The priest represented him before God. If you wanted to see the President of the United States, I mean, this is not the best analogy, but you don't walk up to um, what's, whatever street it's on. You know, we were, I was there. What was that? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania Avenue. Were we on Pennsylvania Avenue last week? Okay, I was sleeping or something. Um, I didn't see the. I didn't see the, We didn't go to the White. We were in Washington D.C. last week. Um, we were really hoping on Saturday that we would see the pickets and the. Uh, yeah, we were hoping that we would be right in the middle of it. You know, so we went to the Supreme Court and the. We didn't go to the White House. Thinking all the action is going to be in front of the Capitol and the Supreme Court. And we went there. Man, was I disappointed. You had one anti-Kavanaugh guy, gal, and one pro-Trump guy. That was it. And she had tape over her mouth, and he was making a fool of himself. What a... And I told Randy and Kathy went with Cheryl and I, or we went with them, whatever. Um, I said, we should have gone... You know, Cheryl said, we should have gone today or Monday, you know. 
you know, there's two when we were there. There are 2,000 today. What a disappointment it was. So. Anyway, we didn't try to go to the White House, but try to go to the White House sometime and say, well, I'm here to see Donald or the president. Don't say Donald. You know, when we talked to people in the area, we, we, we went to the Trump Hotel. I won't tell you who really wanted to go to the Trump Hotel. <laughs> and they call him DTJ, uh, DJT, excuse me, DJT, Donald J. Trump. They don't call him President, Mr. President, uh, Mr. President Trump. They, they call him DJT when he comes in. Anyway, DJT wasn't there when we were there. Uh, we had a cup of coffee at the Trump Hotel, and we couldn't afford the room that we saw. <laughs> I was going to have to put my wife into servitude for a month. It was a very nice room we saw, right? Yeah, it was extremely nice. But anyway, be that as it may, you don't walk into the White House and just go straight up and see President Trump. You've got to go through an intercessor, a mediator, probably more than one, the secretary, secret service, whatever the case might be. If, if that's what you have to do to see the President of the United States, why do you think you can go straight to God? Now, I know Donald thinks he's God at times, but that's a whole lot of people think they're God. You know, you just don't do, you have to have a mediator. Jesus is the mediator. We don't come directly to God. We have to go through Jesus. There is one God, one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. As a man, because Jesus is more than man, right? Yeah, he is the God, man. But the mediator between God, which would be the Father here, <coughs> and us, mankind, is the man, Christ Jesus. He took on flesh, died for the sins of the world, that we would be able to go into the presence of God. And back in Hebrews chapter 4, remember what it says? Based on his uh, intercessory death, let us come therefore boldly onto the throne of grace that we may help find help in time. It's predicated on Jesus and what he has done. He's our mediator. <clears throat> John 2, 1 through 2. Uh, my little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. God doesn't want us to sin. <clears throat> God wants us as believers, as children, to live holy lives. In many ways, no different than what you desire, or what you should desire anyway, for your children. If you have children, you wanted them to grow up and live a godly, good, sinless, as much as possible, life, right? None of us want to see our, our children get involved in sin. God doesn't want to see us get involved in sin. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, in other words, we are going to sin. It's part of our nature. There's no getting around that. But if we do sin, and when we do sin, what he's saying, we have an advocate. An advocate is a representative. An attorney, if you will. Much better than Avenatti. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, uh, 
not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We have an advocate. See, when we sin, it's kind of like what Satan did with Job when Job sinned and went to God and said, you know, look at Job, he's so great, or not when he sinned, but look at Job, he's so righteous, because he's gotten everything you've given him, he's just so blessed. And so Satan went to God trying to get God to do something. Satan does the same type of thing with us. But Jesus says, I died for that person. I mediated for that individual. He or she put his or her trust in me and because of my death, my burial, my resurrection, the promise of the covenant that they will have eternal life on the shedding of my blood, my death, they are secure. And he mediates, he represents us before God. The book of Hebrews, and we've talked about this, is, is Romans is good. Romans 8 is good. But there's, there may not be any better book on eternal security than the book of Hebrews. We looked at it back in chapter. Even though some of the passages in Hebrews are used by many people to show we don't have eternal security. They don't understand it. It is one of the best books in the Bible on eternal security. Why? Where's Jesus now? He's heaven. He's in heaven. He is our advocate. He is our representative. And when we sin, he says to the Father, what? I died for that sin. And the covenant that I promised was that if they accept me, they will have eternal life. And I'm living to make sure that comes to pass. He represents us. You cannot lose your salvation. If you're truly saved, you can't lose your salvation. Not at all. Romans 8.34. Who is he that condemns? Who, who condemns us? Is, you know, well, Satan condemns us, right? But who in their right mind has any authority to condemn a child of God? To say, because you did whatever you did, you are lost in going to hell. Who condemns us? Well, it's kind of a rhetorical question. Nobody. Nobody has that right. Why? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Romans 8, 34. Nobody, whoever condemns it, it can be Satan, it can be demons, it can be your best friend. Uh, if you're truly saved and, and you do something sinful, you're, you're not, you don't lose your salvation because you have someone who is interceding for you, who is your advocate before a holy God, who is your mediator, who represents you. And, and Jesus is the Perry Mason of spiritual things. You know who Perry Mason was? Kids in the back know. Dan's kids don't know Mason, you know. Okay. Perry Mason never lost a case, right? 
Yeah, it would always look bleak, and you know, but at the very end, old Perry turns the tables and wins the case. Never lost a case. Jesus is much better than Perry Mason, even though Perry never lost a case. Jesus ne never lost a case. He is, he is interceding for us. And then earlier in Hebrews 7.25, and I added the bold here, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. You know, when we talk, you know, I love the King James at times. He saved them to the uttermost. Well, how, how far out is the uttermost? How long is the uttermost? So it's the uttermost. It's just a long time. You know, he saved to the uttermost. Uh, why? Because he's ever living. He rose from the grave. He can't die, won't die, will not die. He's eternal. And he is interceding for us, and that makes us eternal. We cannot lose our salvation because he is our mediator. Jesus now has appeared in the presence of God for us. I mean, one of the, one of the understand this, because if you don't understand, I don't know how anybody who believes they can lose their salvation can have any peace on earth. You're probably more wretched in, in thought and process than a lot of unsaved people. Well, I, I think I'm saved, but I'm not sure, and I might lose it. And, you know, how can you have any rest for your soul with that kind of turmoil? Going, well, maybe I'm saved. Maybe I'm one of the elect, or whatever the case might be. You know, underline it in your heart, in your mind. This is what the Scripture teaches. You cannot lose your salvation. If you think there's a verse that says you can lose your salvation, the problem in understanding is yours, not with the teaching of that verse. Not one verse teaches that. Underline it. Put it in bold. Put it in the depths of your being, of your heart. You, once you're truly saved, once you're saved, can never, ever lose your salvation. Because you're so good? No. Did your goodness get you salvation? No. Is your goodness keeping your salvation? Is your goodness going to get you to heaven? No. It's all Jesus. You know, the next issue, maybe you don't know, but the next issue of um, Israel's messenger is on this very thing. Uh, salvation in three tenses. Past, present, and future. Justification, sanctification, glorification. And, and by the way, I finally read Dan's article. Dan did a really pretty good job on that article. Remember I told you you've got to read Dan's article? Even though I hadn't read it yet because I was going to change it if he didn't do a good job. I didn't have to change hardly anything in it. So, Are you listening, Dan? Yeah. Okay, don't listen. Um, <laughs> So, <laughs> so he was. He's yes. He did a good job. Did a good job. I have a feeling Lois wrote it, but that's a whole other story. Um, so, okay. Really, really, you know, underline in your heart. You can't lose your salvation because Jesus is mediator, intercessor, advocate in God's presence right now for us. He's never lost a case. Never. And, if, and we are secure in him.
And that's, that's where real peace with God starts. You can be saved and not believe that and be miserable. Why? You can't lose your salvation. If you want peace with God, you've got to understand that you are secure in Jesus once you're saved. You can't lose your salvation. So just underline it. Verse 25 and 26. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. It's not that he had to do it every year, Jesus. The high priest had to every year go, and, and, and chapter 10 will build on this thought, by the way. The high priest every year had to go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for the people. He had to do it every year for the sins of the people. Which, which tells us that those sins were really never forgiven. Because if they were forgiven, why would it need to be done year after year after year? It wouldn't. But Jesus didn't have to do it one point after another. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But if, if, if what Jesus had to do was what the high priest did, is regularly die for our sins and suffer our sins, he would have to be doing it over and over and over again. But, but he didn't have to, because now, once in the end of the age, have he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, the sin penalty. Isn't that a blessing? He only had to do it once. The great truth of Scripture, Jesus died once for our sins, and it is his sacrifice that is alone sufficient for the payment of our sins. He died once. Now, I put this in here. The Council of Trent, which is still... Binding in the Catholic world. The 22nd session of the Council of Trent, which is the dogma of the Catholic Church. And this comes out of the teaching of the Catholic Church by Neuer and Rahner, page 296. Says this, Inasmuch as in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, there is contained and immolated in an unbloody manner the same Christ who once offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross. The Holy Council teaches that this, the Mass, is truly propitiary. In other words, it does away with sin. And has the effect that if contrite and penitent with sincere heart and upright faith, with fear and reverence, we draw nigh to God we obtain mercy and find grace and seasonable aid, quoting Hebrews 4.16. For appeased by this sacrifice, the Mass, the Lord grants the grace and gift of penitence, repentance, and pardons even the gravest crimes and sins. That's Catholic Church dogma. That in the Mass, with that wafer and that, and that wine, you have actually the re-crucifixion of Jesus and his blood. And it is propitiatory. 
that is in complete contradiction to what the book of Hebrews teaches. So the question, is the Roman Catholic Church correct or is Hebrews correct? Amen. Yeah. You cannot be a convinced Catholic in the dogmas and belief that believing, when I say convinced and believing in the dogmas, the teaching, the doctrines of the Catholic Church, be saved. And to do this over and over and over again is actually blasphemy. Jesus had appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The Mass doesn't do it. Neither does communion, by the way, that Protestant churches uh, do it. The Catholics say that the Mass is transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is that the, those elements, the wine and the wafer, actually turn into the literal body and the literal blood of Jesus. In the other... The other side of the coin, I guess you could say, would be Bible-believing churches who practice communion but understood and understand that that piece of bread and that juice is symbolism. It's all it is. It's a symbol. It's a picture. It's an illustration of what Jesus did some 2,000 years ago. It's not transubstantiation. And by the way, the, the, the Lutheran church and those like it, uh, you know, Luther coming, uh, never wanting to really leave uh, Catholicism, hoping Catholicism would change in justification, but they didn't. And so when Lutheranism was started, and we've got some, probably some former Lutherans, maybe present Lutherans here, I'm not sure. Anyway. They have what they call, well, they call it consubstantiation. And consubstantiation, in their celebration of uh, the Lord's table, call it what you want, is hardly better than transubstantiation. Con means what? Well, it can mean against. Um, with. It can also mean with. So... What, that, that what they're saying is that the actual presence of Jesus is actually with that blood or that, that wine in that wafer. Now, the Catholics, trans, says it, 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 it turns into, it goes across. It literally becomes. Consubstantiation is hardly any better. Maybe a tad better, but hardly any. It's just a piece of matzah, whatever you're using. It's just a piece of juice. Or, drink, or, or a cup of juice. It's symbolic. That's all it is. The real thing happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus. Catholicism is wrong. Hebrews is right. Then in verse 27, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Now, he's giving a warning here. And, and, and I'll pick up the warning. But going back to the beginning, it's been mentioned before, who is being addressed in the book of Hebrews? The Jewish people. Two groups of Jewish people, though. Professing Jewish believers. 
they profess to be believers. The other group are possessing. They truly possess the Lord. And so the warning passages, the five warning passages are the, to the professing, don't leave the faith. They're not, if they leave, they're not really in the faith, never were in the faith, but warning them to go on. <coughs> he is warning them here. Warning everybody, really, I guess, but certainly those who are professors. It's appointed on a man once to die, but after this, the judgment. By the way, this should, we're gonna, we're, we'll put together a lot of bad teaching in the Christian world maybe tonight, hopefully. I'm trying to think of the name of the movies or the books, you know. Hey, I died and went to heaven. And got, you know, uh, you know, um, you know, that four-year-old kid in Oklahoma. Uh, heaven is for real. You know, how many, how many times have you heard stories of people dying uh, and going to heaven and coming back? You know, and, and, oh, I know my little boy Timothy did that, the pastor said, uh, in Oklahoma, if heaven is real, because he told us things that, he didn't know, and yada, 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 yada. Do we believe little Timothy, or do we believe the Bible? And there are so many, we live in a world today, um, I had listed a number of these books a number of years ago. Some of you, those of you who are here might remember when, 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 I, when I did that PowerPoint presentation on uh, snakes in the grass, remember that? And, and I listed a number of the, of the books that were written over the last 10, 15 years. They just come out of the woodwork. All these people die, Christians supposedly, you know, they, and they go to heaven and they come back with all these tales. You know, heaven's you know, this and heaven's that and yada, yada, yada. Look at verse 27. It's appointed unto men twice to die? Once to die. You mean I can't die and go to heaven? And then God says, but I'm not through with you. I'm sending you back into your body so you can live again and tell people what you saw in heaven. I can, I can, you know. It's appointed unto men once. That should answer every question about these fairy tales. It didn't happen. We die once. That's it. No one reincarnation. It's pointed out to men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Job 14, 1 through 5 tells us all have an appointment with death. It puts it this one. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Boy, is that, you know. He comes forth like a flower and is cut down. Yeah, you, you, you get all that beauty and glory and then poof. Yo, you're in, the, you're in a flower pot. Um, he fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. How fleeting is a shadow? Very. And does thou open thine eyes upon such a one and bringest me into judgment with thee? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. What power do you have as an individual? Seeing his days are determined, the, numbers, the number of his months are with thee. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. We are terminal. 
every single one of us. Next year, we're going to come back here, Lord willing, if the Lord tarries. Some of us may not be here. Some of us may be in heaven. <clears throat> and, the, and how old this crowd is, I'm sure there's a good chance that somebody will. Right? Amen. Anyway, we got some young people here, too. But, um, no, it's appointed on the man once to die. Once. This dying, going to heaven, and come back, it's just not true. Now, look at verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now, uh, this portion of Hebrews in chapter 9 is very interesting because in these last uh, five verses, there are three appearances of Christ. Verse 26, uh, he once in the end of the world had appeared to put away sin. When did Jesus appear in the world to put away sin? 2,000 years ago. Then verse 24 says, For Christ has entered into heaven now to appear in the presence of God for us. So verse 26 is past. Verse 24 is present. He is now in the presence of God appearing before us. And then verse 28 Shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation? That's future. So you have the past, the present, and the future ministry of Jesus in these last five verses of this chapter. Starting in verse 24, going through 28. But notice what it says. Shall he appear the second time without sin? <clears throat> sin there... The Greek word is uh, hamartia. This verse here primarily has to do with Israel and the second coming. Romans 11 talks about all Israel being saved at the second coming. Here's what a Albert Barnes says about this word without sin. He shall appear the second time without sin. Did Jesus appear the first time with sin, by the way? No. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He's not going to appear the second time without sin in the sense that he's perfect. That's not the teaching here. Barnes says this, without sin. That is, when he comes again, he will not make himself a sin offering or will not come in order to make atonement for sin. It is not implied that when he came the first time, he was, in, he was in any sense a sinner. Jesus wasn't a sinner. But that he came then with reference to sin, or that the main object of his incarnation was to, quote, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When he comes the second time, it will be with reference to another object. Amartya is not sin, it's sin offering. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for he had made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin, hamartia, for us. Who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And, and the translation of this verse, unfortunately, by the King James translators, has brought untold confusion into the minds of a lot of people. The Greek word hamartia 
is understood in the same way as the Hebrew word hatat, either sin or sin offering. The Septuagint uses hamartia in Leviticus 4.24 and 5.12 for sin offering. The 70, the Septuagint, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. F.F. Ruth said this in commenting on 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul had in mind the Hebrew idiom in which certain words for sin, hatat, asam, mean not only sin but sin offering. In this case, we have a parallel here to Romans 8.3, where God is said to have sent his son as a sin offering. William McDonald says, we must beware of any idea that on the cross of Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ became sinful in himself. Such an idea is false. Our sins were placed on him, but they were not in him. What happened is that God made him to be a sin offering on our behalf. Adam Clark's commentary, and I only put part of it down, he lists every word in the Old Testament and the Septuagint, hamartia, showing it's sin offering. But he says this, in the second place, talking about hamartia, it signifies a sin offering or sacrifice for sin. And answers to the hatah and hatath of the Hebrew text, which signifies both sin and sin offering in a great variety of places in the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. The Septuagint translates the Hebrew word by amartia in 94 places in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, where a sin offering is meant. And where our version translates the word not sin, but an offering. For sin. Had our translators attended to their own method of translating the word in other places where it means the same as here, they would not have given this false view of a passage which has been made the foundation of a most blasphemous doctrine. In other words, justice, because he was blackened with imputed sin, and some have proceeded so far in this blasphemous career as to say that Christ may be considered as the greatest of sinners, because all the sins of mankind, or of the elect as they say, were imputed to him and reckoned as his own. One of these writers translates the passage thus, Dus Christum pro maximo pectori habuit et nos esimus maxima justi. In other words, God accounted Christ the greatest of sinners, that we would be supremely righteous. Thus they have confounded sin with the punishment due to sin. Christ suffered in our stead, died for us, bore our sins, the punishment due to them, in his own body upon the tree. For the Lord laid upon him the iniquities of us all, that is, the punishment due to them, explained by making his soul, his life, in offering for sin and healing us by his stripes. Five, 2 Corinthians 5.21, as well as Hebrews 9.28, when he had made him to be sin, and, uh, it's a sin offering. You know, every time we sing that, that chorus or hymn, whatever, in church, what's the name of that song? Did they, Cheryl, anybody? He had made, he, who knew no sin to be sin for us. 
I always sing who made him to be sin offering. He, he wasn't made sin. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He was without spot and blemish from the very beginning, for, forever. He was a sin offering. He wasn't made sin. He took our penalty upon himself as the perfect Lamb of God. He is not made sin. That's false teaching. That's wrong. And every, you know, I, I wish we would change it in our hymnals, change it. I don't know who, every, every choir leader, every, every song leader needs to, anyway, whatever. Same thing in verse 28 here. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time, without a sin offering unto salvation. Why is he not going to come the second time as it, with a sin offering? He did it. It's a whole argument here. He came the first time as a sin offering. He only needed to do it once. And that's what chapter 10 is. And when he comes again, he's not coming with his offering himself as, a, as, the, as the meek and lowly lamb of God who's going to die as the savior of the world. He did that. He's coming back as the lion of Judah. He's coming back as the judge. He's coming back as the king of kings without a sin offering because he's already done that. Turn your page over. Precept in Austin put it very well. Who are, who are those who eagerly await me? Because that's what it says. Some, in, in the King James, it, it has uh, 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 those that look for him. But there are a number of translations who says those who eagerly await for me. I think the new King James has that. Um, who are those who eagerly await me? We know that the writer is addressing this book primarily to Jewish believers some of whom are only professors and not possessors of eternal life. So that this verse could have very special meaning to those Jews who are alive at the end of the last three and a half years, which re Jesus referred to as the Great Tribulation, when the Messiah returns and brings salvation to those Jews who eagerly await him, not shrinking back in the face of the most fierce, anti-Semitism the world has ever known. The time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel's time of distress. Jesus' great tribulation. At the, point, at the appointed time of the end, all Israel will be saved. Obviously, the verse is applicable to those Gentiles who come out of the tribulation. There's a great multitude, and there are those that make it to the end. The sheep, refusing the mark of the beast, but those who eagerly await me, those are at the end of the tribulation period. That's the future when he returns. And then in this website, they had a very good chart, and I've reproduced it here for you. The three appearings of Christ. He has appeared at Calvary's cross for propitiation of sins. He does appear at the right hand of the throne of God to carry out intercession for us. He shall appear at the second advent for the final deliverance of his elect. He has appeared for our redemption. He does appear for our representation. He shall appear for our rewards at his second coming. He has appeared in humiliation. He does appear in exaltation. He shall appear in worldwide manifestation. Every eye shall see him. He has appeared for atonement. He does appear at the right hand of the Father in priesthood. He shall appear for salvation to deliver Israel. 
He has appeared for justification. He does appear for sanctification, which he carries out now on our behalf. He shall appear for our glorification. And the last five verses of Hebrews chapter 9 captures those three tenses of Jesus. He died once for our sins. He's now interceding for us in heaven. And he's ultimately returning and going to deliver Israel and set up his kingdom. Past, present, future. It's a whole bunch of stuff here that we need to get into our hearts and minds about the truth of the word of God. Any thoughts or questions before we close in prayer? And Cheryl's made some nice goodies. I, they, all I know, I, she took this big bag of chocolate chips and just started pouring it into this mix and then mixing it up and, and, and cooked it. So I know there's a lot of chocolate in it. I don't know what else is in it, but there's a lot of chocolate in it. So that's, you know, we're not going to feed you ham sandwiches. <laughs> we're going to give you the real stuff. Let's pray. Thank you for doing that last week, Joyce. I've already done that. It's been purified. I sprinkled blood all over the place. Uh, so, Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your goodness and your mercies. And what a Savior we have in Jesus. Lord, and we are, we are if we put our trust in you, we are so secure. It's just, uh, we can't even begin to, 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 to plumb the depths of, of our security. Because of you, Jesus. And we look forward to you appearing uh, in the future without a sin offering. Because you did that 2,000 years ago. With salvation for Israel and the Gentiles who trust in you in the tribulation. Come, Lord Jesus. But we, we ask your blessings on this and, and on our food and our fellowship. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.